This is episode seven of the Ship of Fools podcast. In this episode, we speak to academic Professor Patrick Loud. While researching for something else, I came across Patrick's work, Shimmering Mirrors, where he'd engaged in the titanic task of comparing the various contemplative religions, the East and West. I was thoroughly impressed by the depth of his work. Given the complexity of the task, it's definitely no easy feat. The outer forms of many of these religions in the East and West may lead one to think that there are irreconcilable differences between them. Patrick goes into this in a great amount of detail and we discuss some concepts in understanding how to bring together the seemingly disparate parts of different religions and the way that people view them. Professor Patrick is the author of over nine very dense books in English and even more in French. Patrick sheds some lights on Trinitarian Christianity, Buddhism, the outward forms and doctrines and how sometimes they're conflated for reality and the very interesting topic of the interplay between relativity and the absolute as an area of prime investigation for Patrick. Patrick is currently in the process of writing a book on Ramana Maharshi. It should be out in 2021, so we're looking forward to this one. Patrick is also author of the book Keys to the Beyond, Fritjof Schuon's cross-traditional language of transcendence. A new edition of this should be coming out towards the end of this year. Patrick has kindly agreed to engage in a program with his publisher for Ship of Fools listeners, offering a discount code for those interested in his books. So if that is of interest to you, then please get in contact with me. I will place further details for this in the show notes. So without further delay, please to present Professor Patrick Loud. So Patrick, thank you very much for coming on this evening. You're, you're quite welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. We'll, we'll skip too much biographical formality. Um, I provided book lists and a very brief introduction already. And since the subject matter is so dense, I think we probably uh, should get straight to it because we have a ton of stuff to get through. I think a good place to start would be briefly in your view, what does a Sophia Perennis seek to achieve? And in general, what is the Sophia Perennis uh, from your perspective? Well, the Sophia Perennis is the, as you know, the eternal wisdom or the perennial wisdom. Sophia, of course, is the Greek term for wisdom. And so the idea of wisdom refers to the innermost content of religious traditions and also philosophical traditions. And it is perennial or eternal because it, it, it corresponds to realities such as it is and reality such as it is, is eternal. Um, from a metaphysical point of view. So you could look at the Sophia Perenis either from the point of view of its quote-unquote content, that is um, reality with a, with a capital R, uh, the ultimate reality, which is its object of knowledge, as it were. Or you could let, uh, look at it also more extrinsically from the point of view of its relationship with uh, the various traditions. and. Therefore, if you, have a, if you are a perennialist, for example, you will say, well, uh, in this sense, in the second sense, the Sophia Perenis is the innermost or essential content of all orthodox 
uh, integral uh, traditions, whether these traditions are religious or uh, even metaf metaphysical. Sure, I, th I think that's a great answer. Um, that's my, my understanding as well. So for the listeners of a more kind of pedestrian intelligence like myself, semantics can be confusing um, in these matters. There's so many terms, so many designations, and particularly in a subject matter like this, kind of like signposts for experiences that are well beyond the, the kind of rational um, conception of things. So just for the sake of the conversation, I wanted to briefly define uh, some of the terms we'll be looking at. Many of the listeners are not necessarily deeply involved in philosophy. Can we just briefly talk about what metaphysics actually is, as I, I think you express it pretty well in, in your book? Yes, uh, there, are, there are, of course, different ways, as you are aware, of understanding metaphysics. Um, etymologically, it simply means, metaphysica um, in Greek means um, beyond the physical or, or, or following the, the, the physical reality. Um, when I'm using it in the context of the study of the Sophia Perennis, um, I'm using it not only in that sense, not only, in other words, by um, referring to the fact that the ultimate reality lies beyond the physical uh, domain, uh, but also by implicitly distinguishing metaphysics from uh, theology. Because theology, at least in the West, at least in the Christian tradition, the monotheistic traditions in general, is centered, of course, it's a discourse on God, right? That's what it means. And uh, God is um, the supreme being, capitalized being. And the supreme being, who is the creator, uh, is uh, in constant uh, relationship, so to speak, with, with his creation, and particularly uh, with mankind. So um, in mainstream theology, God is conceived as being the capital B, the supreme being. Now, when metaphysics is used in the context of the uh, perennial philosophy, it refers to um, a way of uh, knowledge that has as its supreme object, supreme object, what some um, philosophers such as René Guénon, for example, and Fridge of Chouan um, have referred to as either non-being or beyond-being. Chouan uses the term beyond-being, Guénon uses the term non-being, but these words refer to the same reality. And so what does it mean, beyond-being? It means that um, if you consider the ultimate exclusively from the point of view of its relationship with creation or mankind, in a sense, you do not consider the ultimate because the ultimate lies beyond any relationship. The ultimate is the absolute, pure absolute, and the absolute cannot be conditioned by anything and therefore is unrelatable. That's, that's a big mystery. The absolute is the essence of everything, but at the same time, it's unrelatable. It's beyond all relations and beyond all determinations and, of course, beyond all conceptions. So metaphysics in that sense would be the quote-unquote science. Um, I, I say quote-unquote because not to imply that it's not a real way of knowledge, but because generally the term science is, is understood to refer to a very different, different kind of science, of course, in the sense of modern science. 
the object of which is the absolute or the unconditioned. Of course, when I say that the unconditioned is the object, I should also immediately add that the unconditioned of the absolute is also the subject of that knowledge because only the absolute can know the absolute, so to speak. So therefore, we are speaking about self-knowledge. We are speaking about what the Hindu Advaitin would refer to as uh, the Atman. Uh, only the Atman can know the Atman, right? Only the self can know the self, as Hamana uh, Marshi, for example, would, would say. So that's a possible um, quote-unquote definition of metaphysics. There are others. One could take the matter from other angles, of course, because metaphysics is, is unlimited in a certain sense because its subject is unlimited, infinite. So would you say part of it is perhaps that uh, physics is a conception of something rational and, and maybe what metaphysics seeks to get at is something more empirical or, or maybe experiential? Yes, except that um, the term experiential might be misleading uh, because an experience presupposes an experiencer, somebody who experiences and something, an object that is experienced. Now, the, the core of metaphysics in a sense is that the subject and the object are one. Well, there is no distinction between the two. So in all the great spiritual traditions, the, the ultimate mystery is that the real lies beyond duality, including uh, the duality of a subject and an object. It's why some philosophers have shunned the, the term experience to refer to the highest kind of knowledge. For example, the American uh, philosopher, advising philosopher, 20th century philosopher, Franklin Melrose, uh, prefer to use the term recognition rather than the term experience, because in recognition you have the sense of a platonic remembrance or anamnesis of the self by the self, so to speak, uh, the self-knowledge. Uh, whereas if you speak of experience, you, you still carry uh, in the wake of this term, so to speak, a sense of duality. But I take your point. Your point is that it has to do with something that goes beyond the mental mind uh, type of knowledge, and it has to do with some kind of realization that some uh, Gnostics have referred to as heart knowledge to, to um, contrast it precisely with uh, mind knowledge, because mind knowledge is intrinsically dualistic. Mind knows something, uh, the mind connects things, and so on and so forth, whereas the heart, um, and here, of course, I'm not speaking about the physical heart, I'm speaking about what, the, what the numerous traditions have referred to as a spiritual heart in, in different ways. The heart is, is, a, is a kind of, is, could be characterized as being the site, S-I-E-T-E, the site of um, non-duality, of, 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 of union, of unity. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually had a Zen master that I've done a little bit of work with come on uh, last week, and we went through the matter of awareness. And the way he put it is it's kind of like awareness um, becoming aware of itself, that kind of uh, ineffable experience that I think you're kind of talking about. Yes, exactly. And that's also, that reminds me, I forgot who um, wrote, maybe it's Simone Bell, that the, but that's an idea that you find among many mystics that the, the, the most perfect prayer is the prayer in which one is not present anymore, or one is not aware of oneself anymore. I think that's a, it's a great definition. It's a good place to start. I think that'll, that'll help people um, a lot. Um, so 
in your book, you, you seek um, to kind of uh, compare the East and West um, from a, a religious uh, perspective. It's a huge task, I must admit. And it's one of the reasons I came across your book, because I was also interested in, in that kind of side of things. Um, your book, Shimmering Mirrors, and I, I've let people know um, about that book and, and where they can get it. Um, for my own benefit and that of the listeners early on, I'd just like to start off in a very general way and, and just say in a recent conversation with Harry uh, Oldmeadow, who's also a, a philosopher of the uh, traditionalist school, um, he described religions as um, necessarily having been uh, received by a divine revelation, first of all, all orthodox religions. And he described that all religions can be seen as kind of like uh, spokes on a wheel. Uh, the center of the wheel is constant and kind of absolute, and each spoke is kind of like a divine uh, revelation or uh, a religion, uh, therefore expressing the center in its own way. Um, do you see things this way? And in a way, do you think there's irreconcilable differences between the religions of the East and West? Is that um, something that, that can't be overcome? Well, all depends what, what uh, layer, so to speak, of reality you are considering. Um, Fridjof Sharon used to speak or wrote about the, the atmosphere versus the stratosphere. So if you are looking at the atmosphere of religions, that is their formal ambience, uh, differences are irreconcilable, of course. You know, Islam is not Buddhism. There's no way you could turn Buddhism into Islam or Islam into Buddhism. That just doesn't work. There is a formal integrity to each of them, which includes metaphysical forms, ritual forms, um, uh, moral forms, legal forms, and so forth. But on what what Harry Meadow was referring to is is the, is the center of the of the of the wheel, and there, of course, we are in the stratosphere. Uh, we are in what Sean um, would refer to as quintessential esotericism, or or esotericism simply, that is the innermost um, content, metaphysics, if you wish. This is, this is the domain of non-duality. It's not something that only perennialist philosophers have claimed. It's something that is very frequently affirmed in India, for example, Ramana Maharshi, Mananda Mai, Swami Ramdas, all these great Gnanins or, or Bhaktas of, the, of, the, of, of Hindu India. I mean, they, they recognize that. They, they, they've taught it uh, multiple times that all the traditions basically uh, lead to the same uh, center, um, which is the non-dual self or the non-dual reality, the ultimate reality, what, what Mahayanist Buddhists would refer to as the Buddha nature. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great answer. So in, in your opinion, what, what uh, could we gain from this dialogue then? If, if they are different at different layers, what's the benefit of uh, this kind of metaphysical comparison? this kind of exercise? Well, one, one obvious benefit is that one can learn from the other tradition, even though, as I said, the, the, the ultimate or innermost core is the same. Um, the traditions themselves are vastly different, and therefore by, there's, there's some benefit in learning about the ways in which these traditions approach reality. And it's like a conference of, of, um, conference of various traditions that 
basically enrich one's understanding on, of one's own um, and provide one with other possible pointers to, 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 to the same reality. Obviously, it can also, in some cases, diffuse the, the tensions or the, or the misunderstandings or incomprehensions between uh, representatives of various traditions, even though that is going probably to, uh, to be uh, relevant for uh, um, relatively small minorities of the faithful of each traditions. But still, it's, it's important in its own way. And from a slightly different perspective, it's going to be a way of contemplating the, um, the wealth of uh, beauties and, and, and truth of in which and through which the divine reality of the ultimate reality manifests itself through the various traditions. So there's a, there's a quasi-aesthetic reveling in, 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 in the contemplation of the diversity of traditions. That's something that which um, Houston Smith, for example, in America was very sensitive. He said, well, when I started reading about Islam, I, I thought I was a Muslim. When I started reading about Buddhism, I thought I was a Buddhist. When I started reading about Hinduism, I thought I was a Hindu because he recognized the, the integrity, the beauty, the depth uh, of each and every of his, of his traditions. For me personally, I've when I, I've done similar things, I've gone and investigated lots of different you know, religions, as you say, um, and, and those kind of distinctions kind of melt away when you get into it and, and uh, understand it on its own terms. So next up, I just um, wanted to ask, you're talking about just now actually about um, diffusing kind of religious tensions, I guess, is, is one element. Another thing I, I kind of wanted to understand is in the epilogue of your book, you talked about certain modernist ideologies. One of them were um, obviously what you just referenced now, the exoteric uh, versions of some of these faiths. You know, I wanted to understand what are, what are some of the modernist ideologies that stand in the way of getting a good comparative grip on these uh, different traditions? Yes, it's, a, it's an important question. Uh, but before I get to it very quickly, you mentioned the exoteric dimension as being an obstacle uh, yes, uh, of course, with respect to reaching an esoteric core, by definition, exoterism is a kind of obstacle or kind of veil. But I think it's important also uh, to distinguish between exoterism as such, the various exoteric systems as such, and what we call today fundamentalism. Um, the, two, the two terms are not necessarily synonymous, as you are aware. I mean, a lot of quote-unquote exoterist, who are not fundamentalists, who are not necessarily fundamentalists. The fundamentalist is always an exoterist, an extreme exoterist, you could say, uh, but not all, um, nor even probably most, I hope, exoterists are uh, fundamentalists. Again, the term fundamentalist itself has its own problems, but I don't want to get into that. Um, but um, with respect to your question about modernism, um, Yes, well, they, first of all, of course, is the fact that modernity or the modern world um, has been associated with the Renaissance, scientific revolution, the Enlightenment, industrial revolution. Um, it has an old uh, history. And this history basically points in the direction of a moving away, a gradual moving away from metaphysics. So in a sense, modernity um, is, um, 
is anti-metaphysical, so to speak. It is in many ways, in all ways, uh, a manner of um, distancing oneself from metaphysical principles and uh, delving more and more into the phenomenal reality, whether it's in the domain of uh, modern science, in the domain of exploration of uh, the world, in all domains of exploration of the world, modernity is could be defined as a moving away from from the center, and um, in in various ways a manner of affirming the independence, the illusory independence of the various points on the periphery of existence independence, illusory independence from the center. So it's either a negation of the center or a kind of semi-conscious um, attempt at disconnecting uh, the periphery from the center and uh, giving to the periphery uh, a kind of autonomy. Um, individualism, for example, is, is, is a form of it. And any kind of relativism is, is a form of it. Um, um, so... Um, Modernity would be simply defined as anti-tradition, and if one understands tradition as referring ultimately to metaphysical principles, then one could say that modernity is simply uh, the opposite. Now, the difficulty is that modernity also works within the religious domain, and that many, in fact, all traditions have been to some extent uh, corroded by uh, quote-unquote modernist influences in different ways. There has been arguably, um, and of course this is a controversial topic, needless to say, but there has been arguably a kind of disintegration, quote-unquote, in the sense of making it less integral or not integral, making the tradition less integral or not integral, a kind of disintegration of the traditions in various ways and in various degrees. I don't say, of course, that all spiritual traditions are, 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 are corrupt or anything like that, but I say but simply that it's enough to see and to look uh, to realize that modernism has had uh, a very negative influence on all the spiritual, all the religious traditions in one way or another. It's difficult to generalize because each case is different from the next, but by and large, uh, it's a process of uh, flattening uh, the meaning of uh, the religious tradition, of humanizing it, overly humanizing it, uh, or making it um, compatible with, with the modern outlook, which is the, the, the outlook of the periphery, so to speak. So that goes together with a flattening of the message of the traditions. So, for example, if you consider the notion of love which in, in some traditions like Christianity ultimately refers to the very divine reality itself. God is love. So it's, um, it's a reality that is, that is ontological and cosmic and, and universal. And it goes infinitely beyond the, the purely humanitarian ethos. Maybe the humanitarian ethos might be a distant reflection of it. Uh, but there is infinitely more to the notion, the Christian notion of charity than is commonly understood today, I think, by most Christians. Uh, similarly or analogously in, in Islam, you, you have 
a very um, desiccating understanding of uh, the divine unity, which is the central principle of Islam, and also of the, of, of the function of the law in the spirit, spiritual economy of the tradition. Uh, there's a kind of abstract understanding of what the divine unity is, and there is also, um, together with it, a kind of hypertrophy uh, of the legalistic uh, perspective. Uh, so, on the one hand, there's a kind of distance of the divinity, uh, which is conceived uh, in, in mostly exclusively transcendent terms. And secondly, um, on a tertiary level, what is left is simply the horizon of the law, basically. And, and in between, there is, there, there is nothing, so to speak. Uh, hence the dangers of hypocrisy, hence the danger of ideologization of religion, which become a kind of political religious system, and so on and so forth. So this is to say that modernity is not only a force that uh, is counter to tradition, but it's also a force that, to a large extent, has penetrated religions themselves. It, it sounds like what you were talking about kind of concerns outward forms, doctrines and rituals being conflated for reality. You know, what's a good way to overcome this for someone that is getting into uh, some sort of orthodox uh, religious practice? Yes, uh, you, you, you use the term orthodox. And, and of course, that's, that's a term with which uh, many, many people today have problems because when, when we hear orthodox, we think uh, almost um, uh, reflexologically uh, narrowness. Um, and we want to be as open as possible. And it's very good to want to be open, of course, but open, what does it mean to be open? Open to what and so forth. But anyway, uh, orthodoxy is understood simply as referring to a, a doctrine or set of doctrines or set of practices or rituals that flow uh, directly or indirectly uh, from the source of the tradition that is from the, uh, from the revelation or from the recognition. Because in the case of Buddhism, it would be difficult to speak of revelation as such, but you could, see, you could speak of awakening, the original awakening. So um, that which is orthodox is that which corresponds to the right thinking of the tradition, to use a Buddhist term. And of course, this is, this is diverse. There's not one single form of orthodoxy, if you, may, if, you take, if you take the case of Christianity, for example, there are different churches, there are different emphases, which have different understanding. Uh, on, on some points, disagreements. The Orthodox Eastern traditions are different, let's say, from the Roman Catholic traditions on some theological level and, and, and empirical level. But still, um, they share the basic uh, tenet of the Christian religion, which is that God has become man so that man may become God. Um, uh, the incarnation and the redemption through the incarnation, basically. So that, that's the central tenet without which there is no Christianity, that God has become man, God has incarnated, so that uh, mankind may, uh, may participate in this work of redemption through the incarnation. So orthodoxy in that sense is um, that which flows from the very heart of the tradition, but of course, orthodoxy is also uh, formal. So now the, the practical question is that one would hope, and, and I think it's, it's, it can be said that all traditions, in as much as they are still alive, do provide orthodox teachings, do provide orthodox practices. They provide 
orthodoxy and orthopraxy. The practice would be uh, referred to as orthopraxy rather than orthodoxy. So there's, there's hope. There's still, in all of the great traditions, there are still um, depositories, so to speak, of, of wisdom uh, and, uh, and of truth and of beauty. They perhaps tend to be more and more hidden from sight, not always, but often. And what we hear about mostly, what we see, um, is, 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 um, is very different. We tend to see uh, forms of, of religions which are highly modernized and, and often um, uh, hijacked in one way or another by ideological causes of one kind or another. There has always been a politicization of religion, of course, that's not new, it has always been the case. But what we are sometimes uh, seeing today is different. It's, an ideal, it's, it's turning a religion into an ideology, which is competing with other ideologies, political ideologies. And um, therefore, the, the spiritual sap and the spiritual finality of the tradition is, is, is not of interest anymore to people, to too many people, should I say. What is interesting is rather the way in which a particular tradition uh, crystallizes a collective identity. Uh, it's a question of being, I am a Muslim, or I am a Sri Lankan Buddhist, or I am, you know, it's, it's really a question of identity. Um, much more than a question of spiritual finality, because the, the, the spiritual finality is universal. It opens up the identity, or it's in another sense, it's the universal core of the identity. But if, when you focus almost exclusively on the exclusive identity, then uh, you lose sight of this opening. And in a sense, you, you deprive the tradition of what it's, it's very raison d'être, which is and the ultimate universal goal. I guess it's a good way to segue into um, another definition on it. I, I suppose in a large part of your book, which um, I'd not really considered in too much depth in my previous readings, I just wanted to understand the interplay between relativity and the absolute um, as an area of investigation for your book. I'd like to determine, you know, for the listener and, and actually for myself uh, to seek a bit of clarity on what, what is meant on the discourse between relativity and the absolute and, and why it's important uh, to this task of uh, comparison? Yes, uh, that's a very good question. The, the, the relative and the absolute, uh, of course, these notions, uh, I think, uh, can be approached um, etymologically. First of all, it's very helpful very often, of course, to go back to the origin of words to understand, to understand what they mean. Basically, uh, the absolute is... is, is is that which is both necessary, but as an intrinsic necessity in and of itself, which cannot but be, and which uh, by the same token is utterly independent and free. Uh, free, F-R-E-E. -E. <laughs> we will go back to that, to, to that distinction when we um, speak about Christianity. Um, free, so necessity and freedom or independence. Uh, are the hallmarks of absolute absoluteness. Um, so God is absolute in that sense. Of course, God is the only necessary being. Everything else is not necessary, it's only contingent. Um, now the relative, and, and of course, being free, uh, the absolute is independent, as I say. Um, and therefore, 
in a sense, uh, unrelatable. Because any kind of relation, in a sense, is incompatible with the nature of absoluteness. Relativity is non-absoluteness. Relativity means that the intrinsic reality of a relative reality is that it is relative to something else or to somebody else. So everything that is not the absolute is by definition relative upon the absolute. And this distinction can be even introduced into absoluteness itself. Hence the distinction that uh, Friedrich Schion uh, has proposed between the absolute as such, or the purely absolute, and the so-called, what he calls, the relatively absolute. That is, if you, wish, if you wish, one can consider the absolute from two points of view, in itself, as absolute, as necessary being, as independent reality, and also as it seemingly, so to speak, relates to other than itself. And that's the relatively absolute. So um, if we speak of the, the God of the Bible, we can say that the God of the Bible, the God's, God such as he speaks and manifests in and through the Bible is the absolute. It cannot be the absolutely absolute because God here relates to mankind and to creation. So this God is relatively absolute. That's the face of God, so to speak, that relates to other than itself. This distinction is very well known in some traditions like in Hinduism, in particularly in Vedanta, you know, there's the distinction between the so-called near two, two aspects or two dimensions rather, or two degrees rather, should I say, two degrees of the of the Brahman. The Brahman is the absolute reality, the ultimate reality. And the Hindu tradition approaches it either as Nirguna, which means beyond qualities in itself, beyond qualities. It is beyond qualities because it is beyond um, anything uh, conceivable and relatable. But there's a second degree of, of consideration of the absolute in the Hindu tradition, which is Saguna. Saguna Brahman is the qualified absolute or the absolute uh, with qualities. That's the only absolute, by the way, the second one. Of course, there's only one absolute, but the second degree or the second dimension of the absolute is the only one to which or with which we can relate. Precisely because it is endowed with qualities. We can relate with qualities. Now, this distinction is also known in a different way in, in, in Sufism. You know, the distinction between the divine essence, what God is in himself, uh, the unfathomable essence, al-Ghaib in Arabic, that is the mystery, the divine mystery, such as it is in itself and for itself. And on the other hand, the divine qualities in Arabic as a thought. And that is, and the qualities, we, we can relate to them because we can experience them also in this world, in our experience. For example, if we say that uh, God is loving, well, it's relatable, or God is merciful, it's relatable because we know, quote-unquote, what mercy or love is in our terrestrial experience. 
Of course, God's love and mercy is infinitely more, and in a sense is different in its transcendence in relation to, let's say, human manifestations of mercy. But still, there is a kind of continuum also, is also or at least a reflection of divine mercy in human merciful acts, for example. So it's relatable, whereas the essence in itself is unrelatable. It is what it is. Just quickly, uh, you mentioned during, during that answer that um, Hinduism and, and Islam have unambiguous uh, description of the absolute. But you differentiated that um, Christianity and Buddhism, they tend to be more ambiguous. What, what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, let me, let me make it clear that I, I, I don't claim, of course, that there's any superiority of Hinduism or, or Islam uh, over uh, Christianity or, or Buddhism. It's a, it's a matter of perspective. If we, if we take the matter from the point of view of a pure concept of the absolute, but there are other ways we could, we could look at the matter from other different points of view. But if we take the matter from the strict point of view of a rigorous and consistent concept of the absolute, then it could be said that Hinduism, especially in its Advaitin form, Advaita Vedanta, and Islam, especially in its Sufi um, dimension, um, have a, a more consistent concept of the absolute than, than the two other traditions. Uh, well, I already, in a sense, covered the, the first part of the matter when I distinguish between nirguna and saguna and between the divine essence and the divine qualities. So to go to, to, to switch to, to Buddhism and, and Christianity by contrast, well, in Christianity, of course, there are Christianities in a certain sense. There are different theological traditions. So what I'm going to say is a generalization and which could suffer some exceptions. Uh, but by and large, in, in Christianity, and I'm thinking of Orthodox Christianity, Orthodox in the sense of traditional Christianity, um, in Christianity, there is by and large um, a conflation, so to speak, uh, an identification between the absolute, the ultimate reality, and the Trinity. The Trinity is the absolute. There is no way to go higher than the Trinity. Um, again, there are some exceptions, but by and large, theological discourse equates the absolute with the Trinity. And the Trinity is, in a sense, the internal life of the absolute. Uh, the problem with that is, is that uh, if you understand the absolute to be unrelatable and to be or to lie beyond all relations, uh, then introducing a trinity within or ternary within the absolute and a ternary that is defined, so to speak, by its relationality um, uh, takes down the absolute to the level of the relatively absolute or rather identifies um, um, mistakenly or abusively uh, the pure absolute with the relatively absolute. Um, so you could say that there is a kind of uh, absolutization of the relative in this case, in the sense that the relative here refers to uh, the relations, or the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. You absolutize them in the sense that you, gave, you give to them ultimate status. 
in Buddhism, it's very difficult, different, different situation, obviously. Um, the early concern of the Buddha, in a sense, is to prevent a confusion between um, the essence of awakening, the essence of nirvana, the nirvanic reality, and any sense of selfhood, because selfhood in his view, or especially in the, well, in the view of Buddhism in general, Buddhist teachings in general, selfhood is identified with the principle of suffering, right? The doctrine, the teaching of anatta, uh, non-self, uh, derives in a sense from the idea that we suffer because we believe in the substantiality of phenomena and of our own ego or our own self. Right? So if we want to rid ourselves of this error, which is the belief in the substantiality of phenomena, then we have uh, to profess um, the doctrine of no self or the doctrine of emptiness. So we have to deny any absoluteness in a certain sense, because here anything could become a kind of little absolute uh, that claims reality and therefore engages us in the cycle of craving and suffering. So in a sense, in Buddhism, there's this, this negation of any substantiality, any absoluteness, including that of God and including that of the self in the Hindu sense. Uh, everything is cleared up, so to speak. Everything has to be cleared up, so has not to be turned into a principle of identification and substantialization and therefore craving and therefore suffering. Um, and, and hence, no self. Uh, and hence, uh, you could say, um, um, absolutization of relativity, uh, relativization of absoluteness in the sense that, again, any position, the position of any absolute uh, would be a principle of suffering, craving and suffering. So therefore, uh, you have this seeming universal negation, which, of course, the core, the gist of which, of, of, of which, of course, is is highly positive. It is it is the nirvanic substance. It is the nirvanic not substance. I will avoid the term substance. Precisely, the nirvanic uh, essence. Let's say the nirvanic reality, uh, the blissful reality of of, the, of nirvana, which is overcoming suffering. Uh, but it's not generally put, at least in early Buddhism, and certainly not in Theravada Buddhism, in, 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 even in positive terms. It's more like an extinction. That's what nirvana, as you know, means. It's an it's extension, uh, extinction of the flame of desire. Huh? Uh, in, in some schools of Mahayana, uh, then you see a more positive language coming into play. And then you have concepts like the concept of Buddha nature, which, in a sense, come closer to the Hindu sense of the self, but without ever speaking in terms of self. Because speaking in terms of self 
would run contrary in a sense to the genius of the tradition. So one always avoids to speak of the Buddha nature, even though from many points of view, it very much sounds like the self of the Advaitin, but one will never speak of very rarely, so at least, uh, of the Buddha nature in terms of a universal selfhood. Uh, one will at least avoid the language. Um, but still, one will recognize the nature, the, the, the Buddha nature, precisely. So the, the matter is put more positively than it is, uh, let's say, in Theravada. It sounds like what you're saying, that Buddhism kind of pushes towards a, a non-theistic approach and, and a negation of the concept of the universe and pa practice, perhaps, whereas Christianity has a God as the absolute. Yes, uh, anything, anything that, uh, I mean, you, one could almost uh, use a, an analogy with, with, with Islam here. You know, in Islam, the, 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 the problem, so to speak, is that there's a tendency in mankind to erect idols. We, we idolize everything. We worship everything, whereas we should worship only God. So we constantly uh, put up uh, idols. Um, and so Islam comes and says, no, 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 no. Only God deserves to be worshipped and must worship. Anything else is, 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 uh, is idolatry. Well, in Buddhism, um, it's analogous in the sense that uh, nothing is worth being attached to. Nothing uh, is worth our craving. Everything is actually uh, empty, no self. Uh, and therefore, we have to, uh, the way to free ourselves from this, from this illusion of craving is about desubstantializing or rather revealing the non-substantiality uh, of phenomena. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, that translating to nothing is absolute in a certain sense. Because even God or even the self, uh, could be taken as a kind of idol, as a kind of principle of, well, idol it would be an Islamic term, but as, as a principle of craving. We would believe in it, we would, we, we would believe that it is indeed a substance, and therefore we would crave for it because we think it's real, whereas it is not, it is empty. A Buddhist would say probably that it's, it's still a concept. I think we'll just move on now to... Um... Uh, the idea of time in these religions. I, I find that very interesting, actually. It's probably a good one now that we've, we've gone through some fairly intense stuff because, because there are some uh, differences, obviously, uh, that everyone knows about. Um, obviously, you have in Trinitarian Christianity and Islam a kind of progressive view of history. And it's been very influential on, on the West in many ways and the, the way that our, our civilization has, has unfolded. On the other hand, I guess you have Vedanta and Buddhism, uh, which is more a, a cyclical view of things. Um, I've, I've always thought about this. I find it hard to reconcile the two, you know, a day of judgment and this uh, idea of the Kali Yuga and the cycles of history that, say, Genyon and, and many other thinkers uh, looked at. How, how do you view this uh, issue? Yes, I mean, it's uh, on the surface, at least it looks very different. The perspective of the monotheistic traditions tend to be more linear, of course, because it's focused on the destiny of, uh, of mankind, the work of redemption of mankind, the covenant, the Judaic tradition, um, the incarnation. In, in Christianity, and uh, and the final reminder in, is in Islam, um, 
And that's in keeping with the spirit of these three traditions also in the sense that these three traditions are more concerned about uh, the human individual state. What happens to me after I die? Uh, am I going to a place of bliss? Am I saved or am I not? Or on the contrary, am I uh, damned or am I experiencing a kind of intermediary a state, a kind of uh, uh, purgative state, and so on and so forth. So um, the, the main emphasis of these traditions is on the human individual, his destiny, and beyond the destiny of mankind, right? So uh, that's, that's a cycle, that's a, one cycle, so to speak. That's the, the cycle of re redemption um, and salvation, if you want to call it a cycle. Um, whereas in the Asian metaphysical traditions, there's a much broader universal, uh, much less uh, man-centered, so to speak, perspective. And therefore, you have this huge amounts of cyclical, of cycles, of cyclical moments in the universal history of, of the universe, uh, reality. Um, so it encompasses much, much, much more. And that's in a sense in keeping also with the, the spirit of the traditions, because Taoism or Buddhism or Hinduism in various ways are much, 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 much less exclusively or primarily centered on the destiny of the human individual. They are much more centered on the center of the axle of the of the wheel we were referring to earlier the Tao, uh, the buddha nature the atman uh, these reality lies infinitely beyond the human individuals and these are the last words of the tradition the Tao is the last word the first and the last word of, of, of Taoism. the buddha nature or the nirvanic reality is the last word of Buddhism, the Atman, the Brahman is the last word of, of Hinduism. So you see there's a kind of supra-individual uh, focus. The matter is really to reach the center. It's not, of course, there's, there are also blessed peripheries. There are paradises, there are lokas in all of this tradition and so on and so forth. But the general economy of the tradition is much less exclusively centered or primarily centered on the human destiny, both individually and uh, collectively. I was doing a bit of research for this, and uh, I came across, obviously, there's D.T. Suzuki, a famous uh, Buddhist philosopher. Um, and obviously, I, I tend to look at things from a, a Buddhist angle. They seem to him to be almost irreconcilable. Um, and, and the way he describes it is... Um, you know, you have the absolutism of karma, which is, you know, all-encompassing and, and inescapable. And it's, in a sense, therefore, the way he puts it, fate is thereby beyond the grasp of, of deity. And then in Christianity, you have the grace of God, where God intervenes. So is, is there a misunderstanding here? Or is this, maybe in your opinion, a, a kind of irreconcilable difference? Well, I mean, um, again, I mean, from the point of view of the periphery or the various perspectives, of course, these differences are irre irreconcilable. I mean, uh, as Ramana Maharshi would put it, uh, go realize the self and then tell me about the differences. <laughs> so uh, from the point of view of the self, there's no difference. Uh, but from the point of view of the perspectives themselves, of course, there are differences. And, um, you know, that's, that's the, the question of... Uh, 
in Hinduism, karma and, and grace, for example, in Christianity also works and, and grace, uh, or in a different way also in Islam, you know, you have, there is a sense in which um, uh, our destiny uh, is unfolding with a kind of inexorability um, and necessity uh, that nothing seemingly can uh, affect. Uh, but in, a, in another way, in all of these traditions, you have the sense that God or the ultimate reality is, is precisely because it is ultimate, can, can intervene, so to speak, into the course of event through grace and therefore even affect, in a sense, in some rare cases, affect the course of destiny or can even overcome karma in, in some rare cases in, in in Hinduism, uh, the question was put, for example, to Ramana Maharshi, can you speak about the karma, the prarabdha karma, um, but isn't there a way in which the Brahman, who is all-powerful, could, uh, could affect the course of karma, could modify the course of karma? And he said, yes, in some rare cases, it does happen, because the all-powerful is, by definition, all-powerful, so nothing can uh, constrain it in an absolute way. So they are, there is an order of nature, there's an ordainer, there's a, there's a destiny, as the, as the Muslim would say, there's a predestination on the one hand, and this predestination is an, is, a, is an expression of the divine absoluteness, that is of the divine necessity. It is a, actually a reflection in the relative order of the necessity of the absolute. It has something inexorable about it, therefore, but at the same time, uh, the divine is not only absolute, the divine is also infinite. And so therefore, uh, the divine is free. And it's free, therefore, to intervene into the course of things and to, and to at times, change it. There's nothing, in other words, absolute in the field of the relative. And that's what miracles, for example, in various traditions also illustrate. Uh, miracles are suspension of ordinary natural causality. So they are thought to be direct intervention of the divine reality into the domain of relativity. I guess there's a danger then from what you're saying of, of becoming overly concerned with, with that concept of form, uh, do you think? Uh, you mentioned the question of form and uh, obsession with forms, that's what you said. I suppose becoming overly concerned with these kind of outward differences between the, these religions. Yes, and it's a very good question. It's, it's a difficult one too, because I mean, forms have their role to play. They have their own necessity on their own level. Uh, on the other hand, ideally at least, uh, or principally, they are supposed to take us beyond form. They are not an absolute, huh? famous, uh, you know, finger pointing at the moon, uh, uh, but the finger is not the moon. So that's a key for many things in the world of religions. Uh, so on the one hand, one has to be keenly aware of the need for an integrity of forms. Sacred forms are conveyors of reality and truth and beauty. On the other hand, one must, must not turn them into, into absolutes, into little absolutes or into little idols, thereby um, worshipping the finger uh, instead of looking at the moon, right? 
So that has always been a problem, um, but it is all the more a problem when uh, in situations or in circumstances when um, spiritual vibrancy of the tradition is 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 uh, is failing or is uh, is less readily um, accessible. Because then, of course, there is a greater danger of um, a fossilization or petrification formalization of, of, of the tradition. So there are two, two excesses or two extremes to avoid here. Uh, one is uh, formalism, but the other one, which is also very prevalent nowadays, unfortunately, is the disdain of forms. Under the pretext that forms are just forms, or that forms have decayed, or that forms are, have, have, have become formalism, one rejects sacred forms, and one thinks what one can do one own, one's own little thing on one's own without forms and kind of cook up um, a religion just for oneself. Um, so that's, that's a very, very prevalent temptation, unfortunately, nowadays, especially in the West, in the Western world. And in as much as the world is Westernized, it's a temptation, I think, uh, everywhere to some extent. That's, and that's, I think that that results from a certain sense, lack of sense of the sacred. And what I mean by sense of the sacred is uh, that uh, sacred realities have a certain vibration, and this vibration um, has the potential of taking us to the center, to interiorize us. Beautiful, uh, let's say, Khmer Buddhas, Cambodian Buddhas, with wonderful expressions of that, you know, it's like seeing enlightenment. So that's the sacred. So any, any tradition, all traditions provide uh, sacred depositories of, of truth and, and presence. And what is sorely lacking in much of contemporary religion is that sense of the sacred. You know, you can see it lack of sense of forms, lack of sense of beauty, trivialities in the, in the forms that are used in religious life, um, lack of dignity, uh, ultimately lack of sense of the sacred, a kind of um, hyperhumanization of religion that is in fact a betrayal of its divine content and finality. Another part of your book you discuss the idea of intent in discussing uh, religious structures, and this is not something I heard before, and I just found it uh, really fascinating. The example you use uh, initially is that theologians in the early church, that there were two different intents in the early church. I think you refer to them as supermenist and egalitarian. I just wanted to understand quickly, and I'm quite ignorant of Christianity in general, but how does this relate to the idea of the Trinity? Yeah, Trinitarian theology. Um, basically, uh, I, I think a, a very simple way to approach the matter is to, is to say something that everybody knows and recognizes that, of course, Christianity is all about Christ. There's no Christianity without Christ, obviously, and Christ is the is the incarnation of the word, of the divine word, the second person of the Trinity. And therefore, um, this unique event, which is the incarnation of the word of God in history, um, uh, uh, from a Christian point of view, from the point of view of a Christian devotion, cannot but affect the ways 
in which God is understood. So for one thing, it means that God is understood in a relational aspect. There's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit, and there's a relationship of love between the three of them. Um, and, and also it affects the vision of God in the sense that God is quote unquote precisely relative to, 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 to creation and mankind in a sense. There is a kind of um, um, conflation of the redemptive um, reality uh, of God with his, with his essence. We go back to this uh, theme that I broached um, upon uh, earlier, um, the theme of the um, absolutization um, of the relative. Uh, so uh, that presents a, pro a pro problem from a strictly metaphysical point of view because the metaphysical point of view is, is focused on the absolute as such. And of course, um, that's a very complex issue because in, in, in many traditions, you will find the idea that the absolute as uh, by definition um, a, a wealth, an, an infinite wealth of reality that therefore in a sense everything uh, proceeding from the absolute must be present or must be um, real in an undifferentiated uh, way in the absolute itself, including the trinity, including the duality, including the trinity, including all the numbers and so forth. So uh, that's why, for example, in Hinduism, you will find um, uh, that the absolute, the, the Brahman is often characterized as sat Sit ananda, that is, as being consciousness and bliss. And that's a kind of trinity too. But the difference between this trinity or rather this triad and the Christian trinity is that it is not relational. It's not as if sat being is in relation with ananda, um, bliss. Um, sat is ananda, and, and ananda is sat. Um, they are not persons. They are um, dimensions of the, of the absolute. So what is, what is specifically Christian is this introduction of the relations within the very understanding of the absolute. And again, it's wonderful from a Christian point of view because it's what is most important in Christianity, but intellectually and metaphysically it's not satisfying. There's something that is not quite right. And, and in Christianity itself, in fact, you find expressions, particularly Meister Eckhart, uh, which uh, fortunately opened the way to um, an understanding of the divine essence even beyond the Trinity. For example, there's a sermon in which Meister Eckhart refers to the essence, and he says there, uh, neither, neither the, the Son nor the Holy Spirit can, can peep into it or something like that, to indicate that the essence in fact lies beyond the persons. Um, we should probably maybe look at uh, kind of finishing up a little bit. Um, I, I wanted to talk about transmutation, the, con the concept of transmutation um, that you have in your book. Uh, do these, how, do, how does one uh, trans transmute their consciousness um, through these respective religions? Do they differ in any way? Yes, they differ. Um, of course, because each each uh, sacred means is different from the next. Um, you could say, for example, that in Christianity, the participation in, in Christ or in the saving race of Christ is a transmutation, is the transmutation by excellence, because it's a participation in the Holy Spirit, in the works of the Holy Spirit. Uh, 
So it's like entering into the into the fold of the Holy Spirit, so to speak. And therefore, there is a kind of divinization of mankind. That's very strongly emphasized in Eastern Orthodox churches more than in any other churches, as far as I know, with the concept of deification, which is also present in the Roman Catholic Church, but much less emphasized. The idea that um, the human being can be divinized through the works of grace, through the, trans the transmutation inherent to um, Christ. And of course, it goes together or it goes through the sacraments because the sacraments, particularly the sacrament of the Eucharist, which is, as you know, the, the consumption of the, of the, of the, of the body and, and, and blood of Christ, uh, is the means of of spiritual transmutation par excellence in the in the in the various churches. Uh, in other traditions, uh, actually in many traditions, uh, a central means a central means of transmutation of spiritual transformation and transmutation is the divine name or the divine names or a particular mantra or formula, sacred formula which is understood to be replete with divine presence and power, transformative power, precisely. You find that in the way of the invocation in many traditions from the Nembutsu of Honen and Shinran in Pure Land Buddhism to the Sufi Dekar, uh, which means literally both mention and remembrance of God, and which is the central methodical practice of uh, Sufism, you find it also in the Christian tradition with the Jesus prayer and with the Japa yoga uh, in uh, Hinduism, in, in all cases with different uh, inflections and different modalities, of course, but the idea is that the sacred word um, by virtue of participating in the nature of the divine itself has deeply transformative uh, power, and therefore to repeat it with sincerity and faith, to avail oneself of it, is the central means of transmutation. But there are all the kinds of transmutation that have to do with uh, natural phenomena. Um, the contemplation of nature in, in traditions such as Native American traditions, for example, but other traditions as well. In fact, all, in all traditions, the sense that the cosmos, the earth, is a mirror of uh, the divine qualities and therefore that by contemplating what Muslims would call the ayat, the signs of God on the horizon, on the terrestrial horizon, one in a sense contemplates the divine reality itself as reflected in nature and creation. And that is also a means of transmutation, the beauty of creation. Uh, becomes a means of transmutation on the basis, of course, of a spiritual practice, not independently from it. In other words, nobody is going to say that under normal circumstances, just contemplating a beautiful sunset is going to be a means of spiritual realization. But when combined with a spiritual practice, uh, it can uh, serve as a support of spiritual uh, realization because that which is within is reflected in that which is without. Uh, the divine within is reflected in the divine without. So when I see outside uh, 
the, the beautiful blue sky, uh, I see uh, that which I bear within myself, in a sense. See? So it's a kind of um, give and take between the inside and the, and the outside. So that's, that's also an aspect of transmutation, the cosmos, the contemplation of the cosmos, the reading of scriptures, the chanting of scriptures, of course, is an important means of transmutation in many traditions, because once again, the scriptures are a divine discourse, therefore they are as much important in terms of their, um, their ontological reality than uh, in terms of what they actually say. What they are is in a sense more important than what they say. Of course, what they say is also very important, but um, you could say pretty much the same and it wouldn't have the same power. No? So when considering the Quran, for example, of course, the Quran states a number of things which are absolutely essential from, a mis from an Islamic point of view, but, but uh, it has also a texture, it has a sacramental quality uh, that is the trace of its divine origin from, from an Islamic point of view. And the same could be said in other traditions. Talking about black elk, in particular, that native peoples did not require the same engagement uh, with orthodox religion as, as, say, someone living in a civilization does. I guess because they're pre-literate in, in a way, um, it means that um, their engagement with the world around them is, is a lot different to, say, illiterate people like us. You were referring to the shamanistic traditions and the ways in which um, their, their engagement with the divine is through, is through nature, right? And, and, and by contrast with um, traditions such as the monotheistic traditions, for example, where the, the mediation is through scriptures, um, and in a sense, it's in a sense, it's you could say it's it's more direct, it's more universal because nature belongs to everybody, and the science of nature are available for everybody, and nature is the scripture of God, if you wish, in that sense, in the most universal sense. Um, um, but doesn't mean, of course, that scriptures uh, are not uh, are not central in their in their own ways. But in a sense, it's more direct. And um, in the case of scriptures, you have the danger of um, layers and layers and layers of uh, exegesis, uh, commentaries that are necessary, are uh, are rich. Um, um, allow us to, to delve more deeply into the meaning of the scriptures, but can be also, in a sense, sources of um, contradictions, polemics, uh, theological um, complexities, which are not um, necessarily necessary, if I can put it that way. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's something uh, refreshing and... Um, precious in, in the perspective of the various uh, shamanistic traditions, particularly Native Americans, but also Mongolians and others. Um, and uh, especially in our current circumstances, we can learn a lot from, from that. And uh, given that the ecological and environmental crisis is, um, of course, the outcome of uh, the development of the modern world, but, uh, the advent of uh, the modern scientific concept, uh, its, uh, its technological and uh, industrial translations, uh, which resulted into the need for 
uh, raw materials and so forth, and therefore is at the origin of colonization and the disruption of traditional worlds and everything. Everything is a collective karma. You know, it's many people don't recognize that it's it's really everything is connected. You, know? you cannot solve the truly the environmental situation if you don't understand its historical and ideological roots. And in, don't, in, those, in order to understand them, you have to go back to the Renaissance and the scientific revolution and so forth, and the industrial revolution and so on and so forth. You have to be consistent. But maybe it's too late to be consistent, unfortunately. One final thing I wanted to ask about is, is the role of awareness in transmutation. Uh, for me, this has been the biggest realization, awareness. Um, do you see awareness as playing a part in all of these different um, religions of the East and the West? Yes, I think uh, awareness, you can call it attention, you can call it concentration, you can call it mindfulness. There are different ways in which it can be approached. But in all cases, they mean that there's a, a focus, an ability to focus on the object, the divine object, the ultimate object, but also any object that conveys the divine. And in a sense, everything potentially at least conveys the divine in as much as it exists. So when you think of mindfulness in, in, in Buddhism, of course, particularly in Zen Buddhism, uh, tradition with which we are familiar, it's, it's, um, it's of course very much cultivated because it means that uh, through attention to whatever is at stake now, whatever is you are doing, whatever you are working upon, um, um, in a sense, you you forget yourself, you, you forget your illusory self, and you um, give yourself to the objectivity uh, of the Buddha nature, right? And uh, in other traditions, it will take different, uh, different terminology and different means, but it will be analogous. Um, for example, the, the notion of taqwa, of um, um, reverential, which is often translated from the Arabic uh, referential fear, reverential, reverential fear toward God. Or you could say it's very different from mindfulness, but it's analogous because this reverential fear is not fear in the negative sense, but it's a reverence when something awesome, you fear something that is awesome because it's awesome. So you experience awe. And, and, and therefore, this all is, is, a, is a mode of attention or awareness of the, of the sacredness uh, uh, of, the, of the object. And of course, in all traditions, you have forms of concentration through meditation, through prayers, through incantations. And it's, in every way, it's a, it's a matter of, of concentrating and focusing on reality and and moving away from, from, from that which is less real or unreal. So awareness is a, is a, is a key word. There's a wonderful, also, a wonderful analysis to, to be found uh, parallel to that in the 20th century um, French philosopher Simone Weil. Uh, she has written, uh, she wrote beautiful pages on what she called attention, which is very similar to mindfulness. Um, she says, for example, something that I like to remind my students and that um, um, school studies uh, have only one uh, interest, one, um, one finality and interest, which is to develop the capacity for attention. Precisely because attention is 
a form of objectivity, a form of respect of the object and a form of respect of the other and, and, and ultimately a form of respect of God. So in that sense, she sees attention, which is something very difficult, especially nowadays, because we are trained not to be attentive. And so we are moving away from attentiveness. And we see that more and more, unfortunately, I don't want to criticize anybody, but new generations more and more moving away from attention because the whole culture, and particularly now with the culture of um, the virtual world, uh, we are constantly distracted by all kinds of things. And it's very, very difficult for us more and more to, to be attentive. So that's, that's a challenge. But as we like to say, any challenge is an opportunity. So good things are there too. Yeah, it's, it's not all bad, of course, but yeah, certainly social media and um, devices are pretty much specifically invented um, to give you the opposite experience of attention or at least to divert your attention away from what's going on around you. So I just wanted to get some final words off you, Patrick. Um, I always ask everyone this and I, I'd love to... Um, to give you the floor and, uh, you know, if you could impart us with some wisdom or uh, something, uh, some important message, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear it. And I'm sure the audience would as well. Well, I mean, there are many things which are important, but ultimately there's only one which is important, which is the important thing, which relates to what we are saying earlier about the, the attention. And so what matters really is um, the awareness and remembrance of reality. So that's what is asked from us human beings, you know, to, to remember or to be attentive or to be mindful of the reality in various ways, depending on the tradition. So I would take this, this, this theme of remembrance, which is so much emphasized, for example, in the, in the Judaic tradition, in the Islamic tradition also, um, the theme of remembrance of God that are our highest destiny, our highest reality is the remembrance of the absolute. And we've had this remembrance in one way or another, um, be it very imperfect, um, one step at a time. But uh, this remembrance of the absolute is what makes us human or what makes us worthy of our human state. So hence the importance of being engaged in a, in a spiritual practice be it a very simple, basic one, like prayer, um, um, any step, even the smallest, is a step, as long as it is, of course, in the, in, the, in, the in the right direction. And the right direction is provided by, again, by, by tradition and by its God's rails and by its, uh, its boundaries, of course, especially um, initially. But these boundaries are not constraining, alienating boundaries. They are initial boundaries that allow us to, to, to find and to, to follow the right direction and, and, and gradually to find an inner freedom that, that is much deeper than the outer constraints that tradition may all too often suggest in the minds of many people today. Finally, do you have any projects or books that you're working on um, that you want to tell the audience about? Yes, absolutely. Uh, thank you very much for providing me to uh, advertise my work. <laughs> Seriously, yes, I'm writing. A, I'm writing. A, 
a book on um, Sri Ramana Maharshi uh, from Tiruvannamalai, the great, uh, possibly the greatest, one of the greatest Hindu sages of the 20th century. I'm sure you've heard about it, and I'm sure many of your leaders have also. And there are many, many, many books about Ramana Maharshi. This one is just another one with a slightly different um, outlook, perhaps. Um, I try to to show that even though the central message of Ramana Maharshi was obviously the question, who am I? And the so-called self-investigation, or Atma Vishara. Uh, there's much more to him than that, um, in the sense that, first of all, that he also uh, recommended his devotees and his visitors to, to make use of whatever spiritual means or religious means was available to them um, in, any, in any religion. Um, and that includes, for example, prayer, mentioned Japa Yoga, yeah. um, and therefore I, I, I try to show that um, Ramana Maharshi is not reducible simply to the question, who am I? Uh, but there's much more uh, to him and to his message than that, even though that is obviously the essence um, of it all. So it's a book which is tentatively entitled <coughs> Surrendering to the Self. Um, a sage for the present, Ramana Maharshi. Um, and uh, hopefully it will be published with a uh, first publication. I'm uh, uh, in the process of, of completing the manuscript, and by the end of the year it will be finished, partly for. Um, and um, hopefully it should be out next year, I hope. Um, a book of mine is coming out in one month exactly on Fritz of Chouan. I mentioned him on several occasions today. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a substantial book, about 400 pages on, um, on his, uh, you could say, on his conceptual vocabulary. Um, and he's, of course, one of the main uh, uh, proponents um, of the Sophia Perini. Thank you for coming on. You've been extremely generous with your time and thank you very much. <laughs>